You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Janet Wright, Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. About half a million people suffer ST segment elevation myocardial infarctions each year in the U.S. Guidelines for acute MI are going to be discussed today with Dr. Elliot Antman. Dr. Antman is a professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School and director of the Samuel A. Levine Cardiac Unit at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Welcome, Dr. Antman. Thank you very much. Maybe you can tell us why this update was felt to be necessary at this time. That's a very good question. We know that the evidence base that uh, forms the foundation for these guidelines is rapidly changing. There are many, many clinical trials. We're actually quite fortunate in cardiovascular medicine that we have a number of clinical trials that can actually answer important questions that we have as clinicians caring for patients with cardiovascular disease. The Task Force on Practice Guidelines decided that we needed to be much more nimble and have almost a turbocharged effort to change the recommendations if the evidence suggested that there was a need for change. So the process now of the focused update technology is to have the writing committee review new evidence based upon reports that have come out. Each of the three major meetings that occurred during the year, the American College of Cardiology Scientific Sessions, the American Heart Association Scientific Sessions, and the European Society of Cardiology Scientific Sessions. We also keep our eye on scientific statements or consensus documents that may have come out during the course of the year. And as for a full guideline, the evidence must be published in a peer-reviewed publication in order for it to be considered for possible updating of a recommendation. So we did that with respect to ST elevation myocardial infarction and felt that there were a number of issues that had come up based upon several trials and therefore put together the focused update that we'll be discussing today. This process reminds me of painting the Golden Gate Bridge, that it's really a continuous process. So you all are reviewing the evidence and then identifying when you have sufficient new data to share with practitioners. Absolutely. Well, maybe you could tell us a couple of the pieces of learning that have contributed to this new focused update. Well, yes. Let me put this in perspective. I did mention that there were many trials that are being conducted now in cardiovascular disease, and some of them are conducted in patients who are in North America. And that's helpful to us because the guidelines that we're discussing today are written to a North American audience. But many of the trials that provide new information enroll patients from outside of North America. And we had to discuss as a writing committee how we would weigh evidence from studies outside of North America. We decided that we would include those studies for several reasons. The trials that we were looking at did employ a broad array of management strategies for ST elevation myocardial infarction. There were patients who had received reperfusion with a fibrinolytic. There were patients who had received reperfusion with percutaneous coronary intervention. And about 30% of patients around the world still do not get reperfusion for ST elevation MI. We also felt that these trials represented contemporary therapy the way we would practice it in the United States, for example, because the concomitant treatments that have shown to have efficacy in reducing mortality, such as the use of ACE inhibitors, statins, aspirin, these medications were 
used in a goodly proportion of the patients in the trials that we were looking at. And frankly, we also felt that it was just impractical to expect that the tens of thousands of patients who would need to be enrolled to provide the adequate sample size to really test the questions could all come from North America. It's just not practical, and we would not move the field forward if we insisted that all these important clinical questions were strictly tested in North America. So with that background, we decided that we would move ahead and look at trials that were conducted outside of North America as well. It reflects that this is a global disease, and we'll benefit from science that's being developed around the world. Absolutely. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright. Today our guest is Dr. Elliot Antman, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and director of the Samuel A. Levine Cardiac Unit at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. We're reviewing the latest guidelines for management of acute myocardial infarction. What does the update have to say about beta blockers? Let's start there. One of our most challenging recommendations that we had to update, when we put the STEMI guideline together in 2004, we made a recommendation that intravenous beta blockers should be administered to patients with ST elevation MI who had tachycardia or hypertension because of the protective effects of beta blockade, both from animal models and from many, many clinical trials. Now, we recognize that those clinical trials that formed that evidence base were from, in many cases, 10 or even 20 years ago. We might call that the pre-reperfusion era. We knew that in 2004. We also knew that those trials generally did not enroll patients who had heart failure or impending cardiogenic shock. So in 2004, we made the recommendation that the acute administration of intravenous beta blockers should not be undertaken in patients who have heart failure or shock, or at the very least, one needed to think extremely carefully about those patients. We then had a very interesting trial called the COMMIT trial, which had 45,852 patients enrolled. They were from China, and the COMMIT trial was a factorial design and we'll come back in a, in a little while to the second aspect of what they were studying, which had to do with clopidogrel. But this part of the trial had to do with intravenous metoprolol followed by oral metoprolol. And the investigators in COMMIT did a very interesting thing. They kind of pushed the envelope a little bit because 25% of the individuals in the COMMIT trial had Killip class 2 or 3 hemodynamic status at the time of presentation with STEMI. They didn't have kill of class 4 because that's cardiogenic shock and they were not enrolled, but they did have kill of class 2 and 3. Now, interestingly, they found that the use of metoprolol compared with placebo had no impact on mortality. And we were surprised to see that, but uh, looking into it a little bit further, it was quite clear that there was an increase in the early development of cardiogenic shock in patients who did receive metoprolol, particularly if they had risk factors for cardiogenic shock, and that offset the protective effects of metoprolol in patients who didn't have those risk factors for shock. That includes heart failure at presentation, age greater than 70, a systolic blood pressure less than 120, sinus tachycardia greater than 110, a heart rate less than 60, 
or increasing time since the onset of symptoms of STEMI. So individuals who had more of those risk factors, the more you had of those risk factors, the more you were at risk for shock. So if you actually had that profile and you got an intravenous beta blocker like metoprolol, unfortunately what happened is that there was an increased risk of shock and that offset the benefit. So the commit investigators then did a very interesting thing. They looked at all the preceding evidence and they merged it with the data from the COMMIT trial, but only looking at the low-risk patients, those who did not have those risk factors for shock that I just went through. And when you look at all that information, now you're up to about 52,000 patients, there indeed is a statistically significant reduction in death, recurrent infarction, and ventricular fibrillation. So we ended up concluding that this trial actually endorsed what we had said in 2004, and we strengthened our wording so that it was quite clear that oral beta blocker therapy should be initiated in the first 24 hours if you don't have any of these signs of heart failure or impending shock. We felt that it was reasonable to administer an intravenous beta blocker in patients who are hypertensive and don't have any of the risk factors that I outlined. And that became a class 2A level of evidence B recommendation, which is about where we were in 2004 as well. So uh, the real benefit of the COMMIT trial was to reinforce and focus down on who would be an acceptable candidate for an intravenous beta blocker. This is quite important because, for example, in emergency departments of the frontline physicians seeing patients with STEMI, we wanted to send a very clear message that any evidence of heart failure or impending shock was a stop sign, uh, which would mean that you should not give an intravenous beta blocker in the, in the early phase of a STEMI. Elliot, you were reviewing the refinements in treatment or advice about treatment with intravenous and oral beta blockade therapy. Talk to us about facilitated and rescue PCI. Perhaps you could start by defining those for us. Yes. Facilitated PCI refers to a management strategy where some preparatory pharmacologic regimen is given to a patient with STEMI with the intent of then taking that patient quickly to have PCI as soon as you can get that patient to a center where PCI can be performed. Now, that preparatory pharmacologic regimen can vary. It can be full-dose fibrinolytic alone, followed by immediate PCI. It could be an intravenous glycoprotein 2B3 inhibitor alone, followed by immediate PCI. Or it could be a combination where one gives a reduced dose of a fibrinolytic, let's say half dose of a fibrinolytic in combination with an intravenous glycoprotein 2B3A inhibitor, and then take the patient promptly for PCI. We looked at a meta-analysis that was published in Lancet in 2006, and that compiled the information from 4,500 patients from a series of trials that had looked at this. And I have to comment here, Janet, that compared to the kind of evidence that we have for other things that define our recommendations and ultimately our performance measures and quality indicators, this is a very small sample size. It, is, it pales in comparison to what we know about aspirin, ACE inhibitors, statins, for example. Nevertheless, we found some very consistent information in this meta-analysis that there was no evidence that there was a reduction in mortality when one performed reperfusion using this facilitated PCI approach 
versus primary PCI, where you just simply take the patient to the cath lab, having given aspirin and typically an anticoagulant. There's no evidence of a reduction in mortality, no evidence of a reduction in reinfarction compared to primary PCI, and there was a distinct increase in the risk of major bleeding. So despite the scientific promise that facilitated PCI seems to hold, it just did not work out at the present. So we we actually made a class three recommendation that a planned reperfusion strategy using full-dose fibrinolytic therapy followed by immediate PCI is not recommended and may be harmful. We've been talking with Dr. Elliot Antman about the latest guidelines for acute myocardial infarction. Dr. Antman, thank you so much for being our guest today. My pleasure. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast to this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.